The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. I'd like to uh, offer a talk tonight um, on the four foundations of mindfulness, but it's more um, a talk of how, having practiced mindfulness for many years in many situations under many teachers, um, what more the living sense of the four foundations of mindfulness is more than just going through the specific teaching. So it's another angle through the same material. I uh, heard a quote when I was younger, um, when I was just starting practice, that unconditional freedom is freedom in all conditions. So no matter what conditions you find yourself in, would you find yourself free? And you could test that against family visits or stuck in traffic, um, plane delays on the runway, um, stubbing your toe, the passing of loved ones, um, falling in love. Um, Do you find yourself equally free in all conditions? And that's some of what I've been able to explore in doing intensive practices um, in the monasteries in Burma, but also being a a dedicated volunteer in a hospice ward, working in a um, crisis shelter for homeless and abused youth, um, and many other circumstances. And in each of them, I think my Dharma practice when I was beginning um, seemed somewhat... um, like a hothouse rare plant, that it needed very specific conditions for me to feel mindful and free. And then it made other situations seem dangerous. And I just finished teaching a retreat at Spirit Rock today, and there were many people shaking (laughs) at the idea of leaving Spirit Rock and getting back to their ordinary lives and all the challenges they would face there. So I'd like to walk through... um, how the progression of mindfulness, how the the development, the deepening and broadening of the practice of mindfulness and the realization of mindfulness can lead us into unconditional freedom. If at any point you can't hear my voice, please raise your hand. I'm more than happy to keep upping my volume. So I just want to make sure the people in the back can hear me. It's okay. So there's a simple side to this diagram and a more complex side. So let's start on the simple side. And if the simple side seems too complex, you don't even have to look at it. Um, You might find it helpful, you might find it not. So when we sink into the flow of any present experience, um, and that's the moment you wake up all the way through any part of your day to when you go to bed, and any experience you can have in life, Um, when you drop into it and become intimate with what that experience is, how it's felt and lived, you could divide that into three different parts. And that's what these three different circles are on this front page. The center circle is an E, and that just stands for the experience you're having. You're sitting in a room now. You'll be walking later. You'll be eating earlier or later. You'll be talking with people. Um, later tonight you'll be sleeping, hopefully. Driving, traveling, um, anything you're doing, 
And this E is every experience you'll ever have in the many years you'll be alive. doesn't matter what it is. There's a direct experience that you're having in that moment. That direct experience, you'll, one of the qualities of that experience will be whether you find it pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And so that's another thing as you come into any moment of your life, you could ask that question. Is this experience pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? And we'll talk about why that's important later on. And the third thing you could look at is what is the quality of your heart or mind in that moment? What is the quality of your attention? Are you focused or scattered? Are you slightly irritated or deeply content or anywhere in between? Is there a sense of love and patience in your heart or a sense of anticipation? Is there a mild grief, sorrow, depression? So the M on this is anything you're experiencing of the quality of heart or mind in any moment. And that's, a, that's an incredible range. It's all the emotions and all the qualities of attention. It's the moment of perceiving when something isn't clear and then, oh, I know what that is, that pop. That's a quality of heart-mind as well. So we come down into the flow of present experience and we did that here while sitting breathing, our mind would wander, car would go by. That would be the experience, feeling your breath. Maybe you found that pleasant. Maybe that was an unpleasant sitting for you, or or maybe it was a mixed full 45 minutes that might have several different uh, portions. Might have started off pleasant, then got unpleasant, um, and then maybe that unpleasant shifted. The quality of your mind changed throughout that 45 minutes. Um, and only you can say what happened in it, but I know it did. Um, so this is the first of the three foundations of mindfulness, coming in to know to develop your mindfulness so that you can say, in this moment, this is my direct experience. I'm finding it pleasant, I'm finding it unpleasant or neutral. And these are the qualities of my mind or heart in this moment. So a lot of the training that I did in the monasteries in Burma was just learning to become more and more intimate and familiar with my own range of experience. And there's a point where if uh, anger was building, I wouldn't be able to be that conscious of it. And I'd start going into the angry stories of it, and I wouldn't be able to say, what are you feeling right now? And it wouldn't be a question I could tolerate because I'd be so consumed with the anger or the irritation. But more and more as it developed, I could, in that moment, not maybe not stop the anger, but I could know it was happening. I couldn't stop the sense of peace. I couldn't make it bigger than it was, but I could know now there's a sense of peace. And now it's shifting into something else. So just tracking that and being very good at tracking and knowing what your direct experience was. On retreat, the experience can break down into Uh, many small moments making up a large experience. So it could be hearing mixed with some image arising in your mind. And you can begin to see how experience can become very, very subtle and rapid. But out away from that type of concentration and focus, our experiences are more chunky. I'm driving, or I'm at work, or I'm talking on the phone. So it's many things glommed together. For this map, it doesn't matter so much. 
whether you're looking at a macroscopic level or a microscopic level. It just means the direct experience you're having moment by moment. That's pretty good. We cleared three of the four foundations, and that was a very fast pass through that. If at any time you have a question, um, please, I'd be happy to um, have this be more of a dialogue than just one way. So turning over. Yes, in the back. Um, I guess I was thinking a little bit about um, situations of experience where people cannot tolerate it. Mm. It's really um, not just pleasant or unpleasant. It's actually, like I know you said you worked in a hospice. Um, I mean, some situations with animals, uh, we put them out of their misery. Mm. An experience that they're having, if they're hit by a car or mm. something. Yeah. Um, I guess I'm wondering um, what, you know, if you've taken vows not to kill, <laughs> um, if you find yourself in a situation where your suffering is extremely great, I mean, I'm, I'm anticipating that some of what your question is will be answered as we go through the second side. And if it's not, then raise your hand and we'll get to it. Okay, thanks. Okay? Yeah. Okay. So we all start with a range of experience that we can be present for. Um, we're not completely lost as we go through life, but there's a range that, as of yet, we can't be present for. We don't know how to receive mindfully. So this practice is about opening up and stretching where possible and increasing the capacity to be uh, mindfully connected to what you um, to what's happening to you moment by moment. And so that's just a, a, a guess that there are experiences that are, um, right now, as you imagine, they're very difficult to open up to. Even great pleasure can be very difficult to open up to. But at its core, the contents of what's happening is you're having great pleasure or great pain. Um, the mind is contracted or open and able to meet that experience. The practice of mindfulness, there are two cycles here, one uh, upward and downward. The mindfulness cycle is before we respond to anything, before we respond to what's happening, we first learn to fully receive what's happening and making sure that there isn't a struggle or a break or a disconnect there. So that's the first thing we do is practice receiving what's happening moment by moment. And we start where that's possible, in a quiet room, settling in. If there's a slight, uh, light curiosity mixed with a lot of acceptance, you'll find that you have this, this connection to the flow of experience. And if you point your mind towards sound, you point it towards the breath, you point it towards the emotional field, mental field, accept it, and then make sure there's a little curiosity so that you don't just accept and drift, but you're actually improving this connection. As you do that, and you steady yourself with that, and the mind wanders and you keep bringing it back, this capacity to receive the moment you're in can settle. And then there's a, there's a point where you settle below um, the surface of what's happening, 
and settle into the experience. And it might be, um, there's, that, there's that switch that happens where you could say, uh, you know, these are all snowflakes and you begin to receive them and then there's a moment where you see every snowflake is different. When you really increase your intimacy, you're just receiving the general category of snowflakes and then you look a little closer and this vivid detail becomes obvious. You know, I could say, okay, I'm in a room full of meditators, people have meditated, but then I settle in any one of you and you're all different. And I settle in any further and see that you're different moment by moment. So we begin by just trying to receive the moment, trying to receive the breath. One breath is not so different from the next. But with some dedication, we come in and we begin to feel this, uh, these nuances that are happening moment by moment. And that's where this capacity to just receive what's happening um, goes into the experience and this intimacy opens up. And again, we might begin in places where this is easiest to just show ourselves what that's like to live intimately. And that's what um, certain conditions like being on retreat are like to support this deepening intimacy with yourself. Um, but then you want to extend that range so that you can be intimately connected to the all of life. And um, bringing up the hospice example, the first time that someone died in the hospice um, during while I was a volunteer, they were in a private room, they died. <clears throat> and luckily they were with one of the more experienced volunteers who was very comfortable with being in the hospice ward, seeing many people die. So that wasn't alarming to him. He knew how to be intimately connected with someone during their dying moment. And then they died and um, we were allowed to sit vigil with that person um, just after they died. So I was walking towards the room and I just got incredibly nervous. I had never seen someone who just died. I mean, I've seen my grandfather in a funeral parlor, but it was very surreal um, to see him in a suit and a coffin. But this was the person's death moment. And I walked in, I, I was bracing myself a little bit for the intensity of it. And as I walked in the door, there's a way that as I gazed upon her, um, all that evaporated and I was just with somebody during um, a very profound moment of their existence. They have a birth moment, they have a death moment. And I had grown enough accustomed to the fact that people die um, that I could sit with her. And it was probably one of the more intimate experiences I've ever had with another human being is to sit next to someone the, uh, within the hour of their death. <clears throat> and it wasn't alarming, it wasn't disturbing. It was actually um, quite easily a holy moment. And I wasn't expecting it. I was expecting to find much more agitation in myself for that. So that's an example where even an unpleasant experience, the passing of someone, no one wants that to happen. Um, no one wants somebody to be in pain. But this receiving, that was sort of walking in the room and willing, being willing to connect and it was definitely an extension of my range of mindfulness, opened into this uh, unimagined um, intimacy. And it was, it was quite beautiful. The same thing happens in the youth shelters, the same thing happens really anywhere. You can be really anywhere in life and you can receive it, but if you open yourself to more fully feel that moment of your life, it can come quite beautiful. 
Maybe she needs that mic. Should I ask this question now? Or? <laughs> sure, sure. Um, I guess since you brought up the hospice situation again, yeah. um, I think it's one thing to be observing someone else. <laughs> you know, I mean, I guess mm. what my question has to do with at some point you act. Yes. So you know, while you're engaged in this yes. observation, you're not you're passive. But yeah. you know, if something starts to crawl on you, uh, or you're <laughs> you know suddenly. Yeah being burned yeah. or you know there's various sensory experiences that I wouldn't call pleasant or unpleasant I would say they're rather intense and you act yeah. and um, the experience of pain can be like that or chronic yeah. uh, situations that go on for many humans yeah. you know 87% of us experience a lot of suffering yeah. for a long period of time before we die I'm just wondering, as a Buddhist perspective, you know, since you worked in a hospice, yeah. do you... I mean, I don't know how many people here have ever been really, really sick or really, really in pain. But. Um, <clears throat> well, I, I mean, I can respond to that in that um, after a year of being a monk, um, I, I fell uh, gravely ill. Not gravely in the sense of heading towards the grave, but it was very severe. And I've been ill ever since. And so I had a chance to be with my own illness and be with others. And I, I'm quite good at being with other people in their suffering because I know how to be with my own. And before that, I would have been quite lost and disoriented. So there is, a, there is actually coming up a sense of definitely a place for response. But before response, one thing we have to tune to is are we reacting against the experience out of non-acceptance or are we responding to the experience from a place of connection? And those two are very different. So um, I'll, I'll, go, I'll proceed with the talk. And if afterwards um, you still have a, a question, I would love to dialogue with you around that. So <clears throat> we extend the range where we can be intimate. We can already be intimate to some degree. And with this mindfulness practice, we're dropping into the moment before we respond to it, before we have a compulsive action, can we receive it first? Under the, the larger word intimacy, there are some things that we begin to notice and we drop into intimacy. You begin to see that things are constantly changing. So to maintain intimacy, you have to open up to how rapidly things are changing. As soon as you lose that, you cannot really freshly meet the next moment. So if you become intimate and then try to grab it at all or steady it or confine the range of what's happening next because you like that, then you've lost intimacy with what's happening. So we establish intimacy and we come into this sense of transience that experiences come and go very rapidly. And that, um, that increases the preciousness of any one experience. It opens up a sense of mystery that you don't know what's coming next, that um, this glass, if I held it long enough, would cease to be a mystery to me because I get so used to it that I could take it for granted and then my mind would wander. But if I keep receiving this glass, if I keep my attention on it, I could suddenly be in awe of it. Light passes through this glass. How the hell does that happen? Holds water, fits well in the hand, has a certain weight to it. There's a way that I could keep receiving 
this cup. And if I kept my attention on it, it would become uh, almost a holy object if I could keep receiving it. Um, At least that's the invitation. Keep receiving your breath, keep receiving your body, keep receiving the life you're having. And out of that sense of mystery also is is born a sense of awe, a sense of awe of just being alive. It's a fascinating ride, even in difficult situations. When you can stabilize this flow of intimacy with life, the next question you can ask is what is really supporting this intimacy? What's, what makes this a stable experience to be with changing experience? Why is this intimacy, why is this window open? And that's where you begin to feel into your sense of self at that time. Because things are constantly changing and if you're an intimate rapport with a constantly changing field, you yourself have to be in a fluid state to allow for this experience to happen and that experience to happen and that experience, you have to allow yourself to flow with the changes of life to maintain that intimacy. And if you find yourself in a flow of intimacy, chances are the sense of yourself has also lifted some. When people fall in love, that's one of the, the beautiful things that happened during that honeymoon period is that there's a, there's a lift out of your patterns and there's a sense of opening up and then you're with this other person, they open up at the same time, hopefully. And then there's this, <laughs> there's this flow and anything seems possible. And like, wow, I, I could really move to Europe if it happened, or I could do anything. And, and just be carried and buoyed by this sense of, of love and transcendence. You know, this beautiful, the intimacy is supported by a lifting out of, of entrenched habits and patterns. And sometimes that's the scary part about falling in love, is that suddenly everything becomes up for grabs because you can be lifted out of the ordinary, the mundane, or I guess the shut-down ordinary, where the ordinary can start to glow and become non-ordinary. Anyways, <clears throat> so there's this uh, more fluid sense of who you are. You can feel this, um, uh, and many people discover this, and that's actually the part of their life that they secretly or overtly enjoy the most playing music, listening to music, dancing, um, being fully engaged in sports, um, playing with a dog or a child. Um, and that part of your life that feels most nutritive, most um, uh, dazzling, that is usually where your sense of self has opened some and is allowed to play and feel life. And because of this intimacy and the fluidity, the adaptability, then comes this, uh, this beautiful desire to respond to what's happening. And you might just let things happen as they are along their natural path, or you might engage with what's happening. I worked at the Buddhist Peace Fellowship for eight years, and this was the art we were trying to discover, what is right engagement from a Buddhist point of view? And it's not just sitting back and letting the world unfold on its own, but by caring, what do, you do, what do you then do? What do you then do? What's wise in response to what you see in the world? And letting the world touch your heart, how do you respond? That doesn't uh, begin to make you struggle or lose the intimacy with what's happening. How do you open up to the truth of what's happening around large social um, forces or uh, small ones? 
So the response side is very important. In Buddhism, it's guided by the uh, principles of ethics and generosity, loving kindness. Those are practices, but those are also the end, those are the results of being free. Is because of the intimacy, you can't help but want to respond. You can't be intimately connected to another human being and not care for their welfare. You don't have to struggle around their welfare, be contracted around their welfare. You can let them have the journey they're having, but you definitely care about what happens next for them. This cycle can feed in on itself, and it's sort of what a, what a prolonged window of an awakened moment feels like. Intimate, flowing, adaptable, responsive. Um, it sets you up to hit the next moment, and the next moment, and the next moment, and there can be a flow, and your range can increase just by practicing where it's easy and then extending your range. And then we hit experiences where we have to stretch. It's difficult to receive them. And the desire to intervene or flee, check out, it seems more and more like what you should do, not to receive the moment. And it's fine to actually make the wise decision, I'm going to disengage here. But you don't have to break the intimacy of what's happening to do that. I can still love my my parents, and need a break from them at the same time. That doesn't break the relationship. It's a wise distance from them. That's the response, but it comes from staying connected to them. And if I stayed with them any longer, I might break the connection with them out of frustration. So it it improves my ability to be connected to them over time by responding in a way that puts a little more space between us so we can take a break, and then I can come back when when the timing's right. So all of us know experiences that we have a hard time showing up for, the ones that are very frustrating. And this is where the mind and heart begin to struggle with whatever is happening. If it's a pleasant experience, the struggle tends to taste like a craving or a thirst or, or a yearning for something you don't have. So it's a dissatisfaction with what's happening now because it's a struggle around pleasure the pleasure you anticipate isn't coming fast enough. Uh, when it comes, it's not strong enough, and it didn't stay long enough. And so there's some disappointment with a pleasant experience. When I was a monk, my dad sent me a, a pound of M&Ms as a gift. And when I opened the box, I was like, oh my God. Like, don't, don't be greedy, don't be greedy. I was like, yeah, right. And I like, pulled it out. I was like, oh, a whole bag of chocolate M&M's. And I tried one very slow. I was like, oh, I'm going to have one a day. And it's just going to be bliss. And as I was having that thought, my hand reached in and grabbed like 20. And I was like, oh, that's a habit. So I tried to put them down. But then I sat there. I was like, one a day. That's like 30 that's like 23 hours, I have to wait till the next M&M. That's going to drive me crazy. And then this bag of M&Ms became this torture device. I was like, ah. And every time I, every time I moved around my, my cabin, I could see it. And that's so why I hit it. But I knew where I hit it. I had hit it. <laughs> Duh. I was like, the M&M was under the bed, behind the box, and the shoes. And the shoes. I just let it go, let it go, let it go. I'm like, okay, I'm going to share the M&Ms. I'm going to share this joy. Like, get rid of this. And... Really, it wasn't about other people's welfare. I was just like, this thing's driving me crazy. Get rid of the M&Ms. 
And I was so agitated around it. At some point, my, my will broke. And I just started, I'm just like, I'm such a bad mom. Dad, why did you do this to me? I'm so ashamed. And like, the chocolate's dripping down. My hands are, they don't, they don't all melt in your mouth when you're eating that many in a hot country. I'm like, oh, on your hands. And, and I was like, God, I'm destroyed by a pound of M&M's. And like, God, so disappointed. Oh, that urge. I mean, I, I thought I had pretty much everything balanced at that point, and a bag of M&M's <laughs> conquered me. <laughs> and there were plenty of opportunities to taste the stretch of aversion. I mean, it's, it's so funny to practice at a place like Spirit Rock, and you get a, a note, and it says, um, there's a watch that beeps on the hour, every hour. It's very faint, but I can hear it. Can we do something about this? So this is, this person's, that's their stretch. It's this beeping watch is driving to the place where they need to write a note and we need to intervene. In Burma, there's a beetle that makes a sound like a fire alarm. And that's how they talk to each other. So you're sitting there all of a sudden, (laughs) and you're sitting there, it's so Aggravating, and you're seeing the, the they have metal roofs, and the crows fly down with their talons, and they're hopping up and down, and they're cawing to each other, and these fire alarm beetles are going off, and and you definitely want the M and M's at that point. <laughs> it's like, oh, the bag of M and M's, take me away. I just want one. No, no, I'll hold out. I'll hold out. Oh God, and then the plenty of being assaulted by that. And then I would go to the to side Upandita this. You know, mountain of a warrior, of a monk, and I would, how could I frame my, my dilemma <laughs> in a way where I might get some sympathy from him? And luckily he shot me down every time. But um, there were, the great thing about practicing in Burma is not the, the bliss I experienced, but the, um, the range of experiences that I had to encounter and be, either be free or be caught. It's like stepping into... Uh, this challenging circumstance, and really it was the only thing that would make it less torturous was what I could do with my own mind and heart and just deal with the underlying uh, circumstance. And there's a lot I could do. It actually increased my range um, greatly. So the struggle comes in around unpleasant experiences. We're averse to them. And on some level that seems natural to be averse to them. You don't have to learn to love. You don't have to be a masochist. Um, and learn to love uh, unpleasant experiences. But when they're happening, your mind will contract, your heart will contract, stories will develop. And this is where, um, well, I'll skip that for a sec, when that builds to a, a higher degree. And around neutral experiences, we get away with neglecting them. So you don't have to, you can space out all you want on a neutral experience, and it doesn't seem to cost you anything in the moment. And so there are whole parts of our body that don't give us much interesting information. So we've gone kind of numb to them. And it's this amazing body we have. And we're only really invested in small parts of it. And other parts, we kind of carry them along until they ache, and then, then they're a problem. But and there are parts of our life <clears throat> that we've grown used to. And then we neglect our attention there. We neglect intimacy with neutral experiences. The breath is kind of neutral. So after five or ten minutes, it's hard to stay Um, interested in the breath. When this struggle continues, and if you feel justified in the struggle, when you start to convince yourself that 
the struggle is worth it. Really, the solution will come from the struggle, not letting go of the struggle. This is where struggling begins to get entrenched in your views and opinions and your strategies. And it's where craving stiffens and digs in, digs in its opinion and becomes clinging. I deserve this. This is mine. And you start to lock in and seize up on the pleasant experience. And so the craving is still somewhat stretching. It's still, uh, it's an active struggle. When it stiffens up, it'll stiffen into clinging. Aversion will stiffen and dig in to hatred or fear. And neglect will stiffen up, become entrenched as an actual numbness where you can't feel a thing anymore. It takes a lot of work to feel so by the time you're entrenched in these habits and patterns, it's hard to be mindful there because you're, you can get dug in around them. A lot of the habits and patterns of our personality structure, how we live, are somewhat trying to negotiate pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral and trying to get some control over that. When we get entrenched in this way, the underpinning of it, the mortar holding all these bricks together, is our relationship to ourselves. And ourselves can be our individual self, or it can be my family versus your family, um, my workplace versus your workplace. There's a, there's an other happening there, and there's there's a that's part of the struggle, is um, a stiffening up and also a breaking up of oneself. Parts of yourself will be at war. Parts of your intimate inner circle will feel discordant. And that's, <clears throat> some people would say that that ends up being the underlying um, mechanism of all of our struggle and all of our suffering. It can be distilled down to how we're trying to negotiate ourselves, protect ourselves, control ourselves and our experience so that we get more pleasure and experience less displeasure and don't have to experience too much neutral. Because of that locked-in state that we can get into from the struggling, when we go to respond, it's a reaction. We'll re react against what's happening. We'll go towards the M&Ms. Rather than receiving the M&Ms, I was clutching them. They had to solve my problem. There's an adversity somewhere in the response. It's a reaction to what's happening. By grasping, by fleeing, attacking. And then one moment that starts, you can actually snowball. And this can drive it for a long time. So you get up and you don't feel good. Rather than receiving and allowing yourself to not feel good, you override it, drink more coffee that morning, drive, things aren't happening fast enough, you get to work, that starts to be a bad day, and all of a sudden you're just mounting one experience after another, that's a difficult experience, and they can, they can begin to accumulate. One of the amazing things about this is that <clears throat> if you can bring mindfulness to any place you're struggling, you can liberate a tremendous part of your life that is stuck all the energy that's stuck in that um, contraction can be liberated back up into the flow of your own life. 
<clears throat> so any of these places is a place you can bring mindfulness back in. Look at your actions and see if they're somewhat hostile or adverse to what's going on. And then bring mindfulness in there. You can look at how you're perceiving of yourself. Oh, I'm a good public speaker and I want to stiffen on I like that, so I want to preserve it. I want to somehow own the times that I speak well in public because it's so painful when I don't. So how do I make that true? Well, I can get an award that shows that I'm a good public speaker or I can take the pictures, I can um, try to grab onto the memories of it. But that doesn't necessarily help me the next time I speak publicly to have my trophies or whatever. It's more about whether I can connect to people in that moment. You can look at the firm beliefs you have and see if they're really serving you. Are, they, are those beliefs good guidelines? Or are they ways that you've locked down, locked down in your relationship to the experiences you're having in life? But the easiest place to intervene is where you begin to feel a struggle starting to happen. And that's the, really the, the best sort of orange flag, yellow flag, that you've come out of the flow of life when you start to feel some struggle happening. And that, that's the intervention. That's where um, we can do the best stretch in this cycle, is where we start to feel struggle happening. It's the most productive place to bring mindfulness to extend the range, is where you start struggling around a pleasant experience, wishing it was coming faster, wishing it was stronger when it was happening, wishing you had more control over it, um, feeling the, the agitation when you feel it starting to pass. The whole challenge we have of having to face unpleasant experiences because they are a part of being alive. So how do you relate to unpleasant experiences? Where do you struggle? And how can you shift that struggle so you respond to it you're definitely taking care of yourself, but having first being willing to receive that part of your life where there is something unpleasant happening. And then most of our lives, if you're fortunate, is on the sort of the, the pleasant neutral side. It's very difficult to have nothing but really graphic pleasure. And you, know, you can go to Las Vegas and see our best attempt to fixate an unending pleasant experience. But most of life is a flow of you know, fairly neutral, pleasant experiences interrupted by um, uh, strong pain, um, if you're fortunate, and really peaks of pleasant experience. So becoming willing to connect to the flow of pleasant or mild experiences. Maybe the only... um, thing to add on that's important is that most of us, depending on how we're constructed in our experience, have something, some experience that when we touch it, the, re- the reaction is very intense. And usually that's, that's somewhat akin to a traumatic pattern where the fight or flight mechanism is very strong in us. And just getting more willful there and receiving it and being intimate doesn't untie Um, that habit or pattern. So wherever you find that, you're trying to be mindful and you're seeing the stretch and some areas of your life it's very productive to be more intimate with. Around traumatic patterning, just that first receiving can cause so much reactivity, so much desperation, that you have to heighten your care at how you're receiving uh, traumatic uh, stimulation. Many people have that. 
And it's one of the things I've studied in the last three years is how to help people on these places, these places where the, the response is overwhelming, and then how to bring mindfulness into um, very volatile areas. And it's not just about being a warrior and sitting down in the middle of them. It's learning how to touch them and then back away and touch them again so you can improve intimacy where there's a lot of charge. <clears throat> and I'll end with just a, um, a story that came to my mind. Um, there was a time when I had two workshops that I had to do back to back and the second workshop I had to do to complete a three-year training and there was just a little buffer between them. I had to catch one flight and I ended up missing that flight by three minutes. Um, so I went to the check-in and I was 42 minutes before the plane left but they needed me to be there 45 minutes and, and they were not compassionate with my circumstance and they sort of just shut the window and they're already doing their paperwork and I came up and I was like, you missed your flight, next flight's tomorrow and, and I realized I was going to miss the whole opening of this workshop. But I just taught a meditation retreat and so I was like, okay, I've got to be here for this moment. <sighs> Damn it, I have to follow my own advice. I can't just talk about how great it is and then not do it. So I was like, but it was very difficult. So I was engaged in trying to problem solve for a while and trying not to, you know, watching my judgments, my anger at the whole airline industry and these people weren't that helpful and scrambling and I got on a flight and almost made it there and turned on because of bad weather and put me back in the original airport. And I was like, oh my God, I was exhausted at this point. I was trying everything and, and tired and frustrated and I had to sleep on the floor of the, um, the airport and they had... The Detroit airport, they actually have a meditation room. I was like, yeah. <laughs> I got into the meditation room and sat there and I slept for an hour, but I was just sleeping on the carpet there. And I was, you know, doing my best to receive what was happening and be intimate where I could, but it was really overwhelming. The attachment to the next day's workshop and all the consequences of not making it and then being tired and sleeping on the floor of the airport. I slept about an hour and I got up and I was like, oh, this is really uncomfortable. And I, I was not in, in a lot of intimacy. I was definitely doing my best to receive what was happening, but it wasn't an intimate moment. But then being sleep deprived and having slept for an hour and I woke up and my mind was sort of disheveled and, and I started walking around and it finally broke, this resistance and this, this anger and irritation to what was happening. And it was like um, 3 a.m. in the Detroit airport and it's not a really spectacular airport. Um, but I was looking, and there are these people that have the night shift, and they were buffing the floors, and they were polishing the, the chrome on the potted plants and stocking the restaurant for the next day's food. I think it was somewhat the sleep deprivation. I sort of woke up in not a lot of reactivity. And I decided not to kind of like pull myself together and go like refine my worry. And, but I sort of walked around for a while, and it was beautiful, like the slow, graceful um, swaying of the guy buffing the floors. You know, this is what he did every night. And he had miles and miles of floor to buff. And the people were stalking. They sort of had a very slow pace about it. And there was probably a dozen people in this huge airport doing their little thing. And again, it's probably enhanced by the sleep deprivation. But it started to actually look very beautiful and calm. I was like, oh, this, this is quite pleasant. You know, all the activity and busyness I've been doing 
at least this moment's not so bad. So I relaxed and I was walking around. As my mind woke up just a little more, it started to feel really beautiful to be in the Detroit airport at 3.30 in the morning. And I was like, I, was like, I can't do anything about it. I might as well be here. And so I opened up and saw, you know, really appreciated the, the care that the guy was giving, buffing the floors and stocking the restaurants and whatnot. And then there was this moment where I was looking around and I was like, this has like the glow of a cathedral. And that, that's sort of definitely, I, I knew I was sort of in an altered state from the sleep deprivation. I was like, oh, okay, we're loosely associating cathedrals here. But like, why not? Why not? It's got tall ceilings. It's vast. It's huge. It's freshly buffed. So everything's gleaming. And, and I'm stuck between two worlds and floating here. And I liked it so much. I was like, okay, let's, let's enjoy this at least. I can't do anything about it. And two hours before my flight... I walked around and, it was, and suddenly I was just lifted walking around and it was easy to feel um, gratitude for the attention everybody was giving to the airport. And it was a transcendent moment, so much so that when the first passengers came, they were bustling through and getting their coffee and reading their papers, like, stop, don't read the paper, put it down and look at how beautiful this place <laughs> is. And I was probably glad that I didn't interact with them because I was really like <laughs> handcuffed and hauled away. But <laughs> we got a weird one here. And then it starts like, you guys don't get it. And more and more people came with their luggage, and I was like, oh my God, you guys are busy. And like, that's who I was yesterday. I was like with my luggage, and I was trying to get on my plane, very frustrated, I have important things to do. And I was like, you're missing it, you're missing it. Get out of here, you, you heathen, get out of this cathedral. <laughs> I was like, don't just sit there, don't you know that guy took an hour to like buff this whole floor, and you're like dragging your luggage over it? It's like, this is the holy place. And I sat there, and I was eating my breakfast, and... I saw the guy who stocked the restaurant, and I was like, I know who like put pulled these eggs in, and like this is an omelet that that guy helped prepare, and and I was in this weird zone, and and it led to a lot of judgment, so it wasn't completely balanced. But I was like, well, this is so different, <laughs> so different than where I was 12 hours ago, where I was one of the busy people, like anything but this airport, get me out of here by taxi, by carrier pigeon, just get me out of here. <laughs> To like, this is a beautiful, holy place. And it's the only thing that shifted was really my state of mind. And I could be busy, contracted, needing to get somewhere, pissed off, resentful, and I could live in that burning hell realm inside, and I did for hours and hours on end. Or I surrendered into it, and actually, that was relief, but I had no idea that on the other side of that relief would be a transcendent moment and the flow of it, of feeling quite, um, quite moved by the Detroit airport. And then I got to pass through there again, and it's still there. I've, uh, I teach in Ohio every year, and, every, and the few times I've been there since, there's, I love that airport. Like, I walk through, <laughs> and I, I feel like I have this secret that no one else has, that only the night shift understands about why that airport is so incredibly beautiful. But it's, the shift was all internal, a willingness to be there, and then opened up this uh, unparalleled intimacy with something I was quite willing to neglect and get through as quickly as possible. So I'll leave you with that possibility for transcendence. Thank you for your attention.